Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Robcast. This is episode 215, Jesus H. Christ, part six. And part six is called, Maybe Jesus Doesn't Want You to Follow Him. (laughs) Uh, Is that title a good time or what? Maybe Jesus doesn't want you to follow him. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of good times... That was a segue. Um, I'm coming to Denver. We have two more stops on the Holy Shift Tour, which started in January. Man, that feels like a year ago. And uh, so I know there's, as of right now, there's at least a couple of tickets left for Denver, and that's in two weeks. And then December 1st, um, I'll be wrapping up the tour at the theater at the Ace Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. And, and honestly, the Ace Hotel, that venue, that is like a legendary, iconic venue that when I first started touring, I guess it would have been three years ago, that was like maybe someday I could do that venue. And now we're going to wrap this tour up there December 1st, which, man, that just that's just seriously, there aren't words for that. And of course... When you're there, it's always more fun. And a uh, special shout out, special love I'm sending to uh, Nashville and Atlanta, um, where I was last week for the Holy Shift Tour. You people, just so much love in those fine cities. And um, so two more, and then we're done with this tour. And all that info is at uh, my site. But now, part six, Jesus H. Christ, the man the mystery, the middle initial. (laughs) Maybe Jesus, I'm going to keep saying it throughout the whole episode, maybe Jesus doesn't want you to follow him. Now, I've been carrying this episode around. Uh, This one's been working on me for a long time, and this one raises, man, I have so many questions, so uh, I am going to invite you in to all the questions that this raises, because this and there's so much in the story that we're going to look at that's happening like just below the surface. Um, and it's just, it's just loaded. So here we go. Gospel of Mark chapter five. There's this sentence that reads like this. Jesus and his disciples went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Now there's so much there in that one sentence. Because these gospel writers who tell these Jesus stories, they're doing so many things just below the surface. They're so clever and subversive and brilliant, which is why there's so much going on here in this one line. Because when you read it, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. It's just so easy to miss. Like, okay, they went across the lake. What's, yeah, and? Uh, But what I want to do is I want to show you a way to read these stories, but a way to read the scriptures, and specifically this story, in regards to space and place, um, which is referring to geography, but almost like a larger kind of geography. So here's what I mean. This line is from the Gospel of Mark chapter 5. Now let's back up to the beginning of Mark's Gospel, because in chapter 1, he says that Jesus leaves the synagogue. Then in chapter 2, Jesus is in Capernaum, which was a small fishing village on the west shore of the lake, also called the Sea of Galilee. 
Then later in chapter two, once again, he went out beside the lake. Then later again in chapter two, something happens um, one Sabbath. Then chapter three, another time Jesus went into the synagogue. Then later in chapter three, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. And then in chapter four, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. So synagogue, Capernaum, out by the lake, Sabbath, synagogue, lake, large crowd from the Galilee. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. So far in Mark's gospel, Jesus is spending his time essentially on the west side of this lake, which was also called the Sea of Galilee. And he's spending his time among Orthodox Jewish people a lot like him. He's hanging with his tribe and not much else. So that's why all the mentions of Sabbath, synagogue, fishing villages, crops, farmers, this is about a story unfolding in a particular space, in a particular place, among a very particular tribe, a very particular group of people. Then at the end of chapter 4, it says, that day when evening came, Jesus said to his students, let's go over to the other side. Now by this, he means the other side of the lake. And then you get the line, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Now, the reason why I line that all up for you is crossing the lake is like leaving one world and entering another. So the reason why this sentence, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes is so huge is what the storyteller is doing very subtly is saying they left the known, the familiar, the comfortable, they left their small, tightly knit Jewish world, and they went over to a very, very different world. So the, these places have symbolic power in them. And the early readers of these stories would have been like, whoa, whoa. They would have understood the tremendous propulsive power of these symbols and how they're essentially the story behind the story. Here's why. When it says he went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, the region of the Gerasenes was on the east side of the lake. Now, the region of the Gerasenes, Gerasenes comes from the word Gerasa, and Gerasa was a city in an area called the Decapolis. Decapolis being the Greek word for ten, deca, polis, city, the ten, a ten-city region. So the Decapolis was this larger 10-city region, also called the region of the Gerasenes because one of the cities was called Gerasa. That's mostly, nowadays, uh, they're mostly in what, what is now Jordan and Syria. Those 10 cities were essentially established at the end of Alexander the Great's reign. And Alexander the Great essentially conquered a good chunk of the known world. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to make the world Greek. Now, he wanted the world to adopt essentially a Greek, very specific Greek worldview centered around the theater, centered around a particular kind of education, which was centered around the gymnasium. So you had emperor worship was all part of it, which was acknowledging the emperor sort of as the, the Roman emperor as the son of God sent to earth to bring about peace and prosperity. You had the gymnasium where people would compete naked. You had the worship of the Greek gods and goddesses. Um, 
you can only imagine for Jesus' students, his disciples who've grown up in these highly, what we would call like orthodox Jewish villages. They had grown up with the Torah, with Moses, with the Psalms. They had grown up with uh, the synagogue on Sabbath. They had grown up with like the book of Leviticus. So the, they came from this very particular world. For them, the other side of the lake was like a completely different world. It would have been obviously ceremonially unclean to go there. You had, I mean, these are the ultimate others. It was a far off land, essentially. By the way, when Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son, and he tells about some a son who demands his share of the inheritance and then goes off to a far land where there's pigs and then comes home in shame, um, that was something that happened. People would leave these small villages, leave their family and tribe and what is known and familiar, and they would go off to the Decapolis, which was like the big city, the big, uh, what would you say, heathen, pagan, godless city on the other side of the lake. So in that one little line, when Jesus says, and imagine if you're one of his students, you're like, what, 18? You, maybe you've been to Jerusalem for the feast. Otherwise, you've probably never left these, this tight-knit space on the one side of the lake. Can you imagine when, when your rabbi says, hey, let's go over to the other side of the lake? <laughs> oh, dude, you would look at, you would look at your, other, your friends. You would look at the other disciples like, are you Whoa, wait, what? I, would you be like, dude, if my dad finds out about this, I'm so busted. <laughs> I mean, this would have been completely crazy to take them over to the other side. Let's pause here. Spirit often takes you to new places and spaces. When you're listening, when you're growing, when you're up for it, when you're open, Spirit often takes you into new places and spaces, whether it's geographic, spiritual, social, psychic, cultural. That's generally what happens, isn't it? Is sometimes you're in enough pain that you can't keep going as you are going. Sometimes you're just curious. Sometimes you're restless. Sometimes you're haunted by this nagging sense that there's more. Sometimes your current system of labels and categories just doesn't work like it's used to. Sometimes the way that your tribe taught you to navigate the world simply doesn't work like it used to. And, and you have this, it's like an itch, this sense, the sense that there's a journey to go on. Sometimes it's a question, sometimes it's an invitation, a nudge, Sometimes it's just this still small sense that there's a next step you need to take. Sometimes it's a conviction that there's more, that you're skimming the surface of your life, and you know that you have to follow it where it leads. You'd rather follow it and run all of those risks than stay where you are and live wondering what if. Yeah, because you got to follow that you got to follow the life 
You got to follow spirit where it takes you. The thing that's happening in you can't be contained by your present space and place and consciousness. It's like something within you suddenly sees more and you have to go there. Perhaps you've got, you're having this. Maybe you're in the middle of this right now. You've had this sense. And you're like, what's wrong with me? I, I would turn it around. I would turn it around and say to you, uh, nothing's wrong with you. This is totally natural. Or think about it this way. How long can Jesus, who's come to birth a new awareness of the kingdom of God, there's like a movement afoot here. How long can he stay in the same neighborhood? How long can he stay among the same group of people? How long can he remain in this narrow tribal context? Because what happens when the divine is moving? What happens when spirit is calling? You got to make that new thing. You got to go to that new place. You got to change that perspective. You, that's what happens. Energetically, growth, maturity, enlightenment are always about expansion. New stages of growth and consciousness always bring about greater depth, inclusion, complexity. That's how it works. I mean, the universe essentially has been expanding for 13 billion years. So that's what happens to us, right? We expand. Something we thought was untouchable comes within reach. Somebody we, we labeled one thing suddenly comes closer. And now when we see them closer, we realize that label doesn't work. Or something we never saw ourselves doing becomes the very thing we can't imagine not doing. It's interesting the images that Jesus uses for the kingdom of God, like yeast. The very nature of yeast is it's mixed into the dough and then it expands. Or a seed, which is so small, but it's buried in the earth. And then what does it do? It expands. So what Mark does here so brilliantly is he shows you Jesus H. Christ moving in this very familiar world. Essentially, it's with his people. He's with his, his tribe. He's in the world that he came up within. But then there's this moment. Let's go to the other side. I actually thought about calling this episode, Let's Go to the Other Side, um, because that's like the whole first part of what we're working at here is let's go to the other side. The very nature of the spiritual life is you have to keep going. You got to go to the other side. But then, of course, we got that other title and we had to go with that. But there's symbolic power at work here with Jesus wanting to cross the lake. He's leaving the familiar and the known, and he's headed into the unknown. Now, Mark calls this the region of the Gerasenes because the Gerasenes were these people who came from a city called Gerasa. Now, in first century Jewish history, there is a story about Gerasa, a very well-known story about Gerasa of a massacre that happened shortly before this Mark story. So when Mark says they headed to the region of the Gerasenes, one can only assume that the first readers of the story would be like, oh, Gerasa, yeah. Now, let me take you through the story of what happened there. So by the time Jesus and his disciples get there, you'll have a sense of why this is such a huge deal. Now, there's a first century historian named Josephus, and a lot of what we know about the first century Jewish world comes from Josephus. And he wrote 
a number of works, including a, a huge compendium called War. And in chapter four, well, in War 4, chapter 9, to be specific, Josephus tells about something that happened at the city of Gerasa. Vespasian, Roman general, sent Lucius Annius to Gerasa. So, this region was under the rule, the occupation, like a foreign country the Romans had invaded. They were under a military occupation. And a Roman general sent, essentially, a commander to Gerasa and delivered to him a body of horsemen and a considerable number of footmen. When he had taken the city, which he did at first onset, he slew a thousand of those young men. And then it says, um, and he took their families captive. And then he permitted his soldiers to plunder them of their effects. After which, he set fire to their houses and went away to the adjoining, adjoining villages. While the men of power, essentially must have been the strongest men in, in Gerasa, fled away, the weaker part were destroyed, and what was remaining was all burnt down. So, what we know from history is that something happened. There was some sort of resistance, some sort of disruption, some sort of disturbance in the city of Gerasa, and the Romans sent horsemen and soldiers to the city, and the first thing they did is they took a thousand of the young men of the city, and these cities weren't that big. They took a thousand of the young men and slaughtered them in public. Then they took their families as slaves. Then the soldiers were given free reign to go to the houses of all those young men who'd been executed in their families and take whatever they wanted from the houses. Then they set fire to their houses. Then they went to the villages nearby to Gerasa, and any man who wasn't able to escape, they just destroyed everybody who was remains, means they slaughtered and massacred them out in the open. And then when they were done killing everybody, the Romans burnt everything to the ground. By the way, this was how the Romans did things. Like the Roman, what's what empire does? Is it just steamrolls everything in its path. And actually, you can find all these fascinating accounts of how vicious the Romans were. I mean, these are the people who perfected crucifixion. Basically, how do you keep somebody alive but in the most amount of pain possible for the longest period of time? Uh, vicious, nasty. So, this place was known as a place that had felt the oppression and occupation of the Roman Empire in a very explicit way, even more severely than other places. And you can only imagine in the wake of that sort of trauma and tragedy, you can, you can only imagine the aftermath. You can only imagine the sort of lingering effects of that kind of loss and trauma. Uh, I mean, we see these sorts of things happening around us to this day. So we have a sense for what uh, this w would have been like at some level. I mean, obviously, in many ways, in the comfortable Western world, we are insulated from some of these traumas. But let's pause here and think about your own, uh, think about the things that you've gone through. N nothing perhaps that obviously violent and horrific. But what does it do when you lose somebody that you love? What does it do when you're on the receiving end of some sort of injustice. It can leave you, can leave your heart broken. It can leave you sort of paralyzed. Uh, maybe you've lost somebody that you 
loved and it took a long time uh, to heal. It's like you can't imagine loving or caring again. It can also leave you with a terrified view of the future. Like if this happened, um, if something like this can happen, how do I know it won't happen again? So in the first century, under the Roman occupation, you had these places all over the world that Jesus was traveling in that had experienced this brutal militaristic oppression where the machine just came in and crushed everything and its path. And then you had people living in the aftermath of this, particularly this region of the Gerasenes. And Jesus says to his students, let's go there. See? You with me now? You've seen how there's a little, there's a little bit more going on here. So when we talk about spaces and places, you can see how the storyteller here is masterful. He doesn't call it, he doesn't even refer to it as the Decapolis. He calls it the region of the Gerasenes. It's almost like he's loading the story with Jesus wants to go to those people. Uh, it's almost as if Mark is saying, Jesus doesn't just want to go to the other side. He wants to go to a place specifically known for the trauma it had endured at the hands of the empire, and he wants to take his students with him. Now, back to the story. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Now, knowing what you know about this region, this isn't that surprising, isn't it? They sailed to the other side to a place that had been bludgeoned by the violent evil of empire, and who greets them? A man under the oppression of an evil spirit. It's interesting, uh, Mark's use of evil spirit here, isn't it? It's like he's talking about the man, but at some level he's talking about the Roman occupation, right? It's like it's personal, but it's also political. It's like all this at once. It's like, uh, it's like it's what happened to our insides when our outsides are put under unrelenting pressure. Have you ever been in a situation that was so tense, so toxic, so brutal that you felt like you were losing your mind? Yeah, yeah, it's like the story is working on several levels. And tombs, the man lives in tombs, that's huge. Because obviously in Jewish consciousness, tombs are death and death in uh, Jesus' disciples' world would have made you ritually unclean. And in Jesus' world, if you had contact with anything related to death, like a graveyard or a tomb, you were unclean and couldn't participate in the religious life of the community. Um, and obviously, in first century Jewish world, by religious life, we mean all of life. You just couldn't participate until you'd gone through the proper rituals of cleansing, etc. So what you see here is Jesus just blasting this code to shreds. He just goes over to the other side of the lake. He goes up into an area where a man who is deeply unclean, living among tombs, Jesus just goes right into the heart of it. And then it says, night and day among the tombs and in the hills, the man would cry out and cut himself with stones. So essentially, he's doing this to himself. There's like an internal and an external dimension to his, his misery. 
It's like when you're in a situation, uh, you're in a job with just a horrible boss. You're in a political climate that is polarized and divisive. Uh, you're in a system, a family system, where there's been abuse and neglect. There's the injustice that you are confronting. There is the difficulty and the strain that you are under. There are the external dimensions of it. But then there is what it does to your insides, right? It's what it does. Like It's that feeling you're in a relationship and it's toxic. And so there's an external dimension to it, but it's making you think that you are crazy, right? It's like there are the internal and external dimensions to all of this. So you meet this man who's from this region that's been traumatized and you see him, it's like he's a living, breathing picture of the larger oppression that the whole area has suffered from. And remember, you either speak up against the injustice and you risk getting fired, disowned, penalized, or put in jail, or you don't speak up, you don't say anything, and you repress it, and then it festers and simmers under the surface, and it just eats you alive. It's like you either tell the person what you think and stand up for yourself, or you don't, and it eats you alive. So all throughout this region, what you see Jesus doing is interacting with people who you either resist, you disrupt the arrangement, and you risk the wrath of Rome coming and killing a thousand men and burning the things of the ground. Um, Jesus even talks about who warned you to flee the coming wrath. He's like, how do you know that what you're doing isn't going to incite the Romans? Because what the Romans do is they destroy resistance and they slaughter and crucify and burn everything to the ground. You either speak up or you stay quiet, but if you stay quiet, that's its own form of madness, correct? Like, you know those times when you should have said something and you didn't because you were like, I don't know, I don't want to disrupt this thing. I don't want to risk my job here. I don't want to offend the in-laws, whatever it was. So you didn't say anything, but then keeping it inside may have been even worse. Now, back to the story. When the man saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of Jesus, which is a sign of submission, by the way. Then he stopped. Then he shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? By the way, that's a Greek religious phrase there, interestingly enough. So Jesus sails into a Greek region and there's some sort of evil spirit there, but what he talks to Jesus and he addresses Jesus in very Greek religious terms. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? We would say, what do you want with me, Jesus H. Christ? <laughs> then he says, in God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. So notice the subtle power shifts. In God's name, don't torture me. But the Romans were the ones who tortured everybody. So like, I thought the Romans had all the power and that resistance was futile. And yet what Mark does is tell you a story about the evil spirit within this man submitting to Jesus. It's like, it's a confrontation, but the power has flipped. And then Jesus asked him, what 
is your name. Now, why does Jesus want to know the name? Naming is about authority, and liberation is always related to authority. You have to name it to be liberated from it. Otherwise, it's just a vague feeling or notion. Oftentimes, we're enslaved, we're bound up, up we're stuck in a rut. Uh, it feels like we're just circling the block over and over. And we, we, we feel trapped, we feel enslaved, but to name it is just terrifying. Because once you name it, now, now things are changing. So you have to name it to be liberated from it. And naming is about authority. So when Jesus says, what is your name? This is like a confrontation. And the naming is like where this shift in power comes. Yeah, by the way, this is why you love comedians. When comedians are doing that beautiful, redemptive work that comedians do, you know what they're doing? They're naming things, and it does something for you. They're naming the things that we carry around within us, but it's like, can I say that? Can I give that language? Because it haunts us, it's terrifying, it's shocking, it's humiliating, it's shameful. That's why you love certain comedians, is because they just say it. They name the thing that everybody is thinking. And then when they name it in all of its graphic horror, you laugh sometimes because you're just shocked that the thing that you thought only you had within you, the thing that you thought only you were thinking, the deep, dark thought that you were like, I wouldn't want anybody to know that I actually think this. Then somebody with a microphone on a stage says it, they name it, and you laugh. And you know what your laugh is? Your laugh is a symbol of your liberation. Oh my word, I experience the same thing. Have you ever heard a comedian say, you know what I'm talking about, right? And the crowd says, yes. And you're like, nobody would ever admit to that, but a thousand people just admitted to it in public. Right, right, right. It's because naming has a certain authority to it. When you name it, it no longer has the power over you that it used to. You just say, I hate my job. Well, now who knows what imagination might burst forth. You name a lack of self discipline. You name issues you have with your body. You name antagonisms and hatred you have toward different people in your world. You name it, and suddenly it no longer has the power over you than it used to. So the first thing Jesus does, he, he demands the evil spirit leaves, and he says, what is your name? And the spirit says, my name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again, not to send them out of the area. Now, if you're thinking, this is a weird story, I am with you. What's even weirder is that legion was a Roman military term. Legion was like a group of Roman soldiers, a particular group that would march into a particular area. So Mark is doing some sort of confrontation here. It's like Jesus says to the disciples, hey, let's go to the other side of the lake. Hey, fellas, let's get in a boat and let's go over to the other side. But what has happened is this confrontation between Jesus and these oppressive powers that when they're asked to give their name, they use a Roman military term 
to name who they are. And then they beg Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. This is a conversation between Jesus and a system of psycho-spiritual oppression that these people are under. This is Jesus versus the Roman occupation. Yeah. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Uh, He's essentially saying, what's holding you down? What system are you a part of that's crushing you? What has its boot on your neck? What is leading you to flirt with despair? Is it ultimate authority? Is it, does it get the last word? Because at that time, there was nothing bigger or more mighty than Rome. And this story is about this evil spirit, Legion, essentially symbolic of the Roman oppression, begging Jesus not to torture him. You see what what Mark's doing here. He essentially is saying, Jesus H. Christ comes to remind you that systems of power and authority are temporary and passing. Because often what happens for us is whatever is right in front of us, right? That boss who's just cruel, that government administration, which seems like it's just intent on destroying the country, right? Those economic systems that you just feel like you're caught up in these larger currents that you have no control over. It's easy to think that the power and authority that you are under is massive and indomitable and indestructible, and there's you're just at its mercy. Uh, how many people do you know over the past couple of years who have expressed some level of anger, tension, anxiety over reading the news. Now, there is a degree to which reading the news, you should be angry about some of the things that we are witnessing. That's a very healthy response. But when it crosses over into despair and disempowerment, when it crosses over into a deep spiritual condition of futility, what's the point of anything? We've lost the liberation that Jesus H. Christ comes to enact. One of the reasons why these stories are so enduring is Jesus H. Christ names the thing that everybody is terrified of and then sets you free from it. He reminds you that whatever it is that is holding you down, it is temporal, it is passing, and its power is finite. Now, Story continues, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us, once again, another moment in which the demons, Jesus has the authority. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, once again, power, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. This is a weird story. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. So this confrontation, Jesus, is essentially a confrontation about competing ways of ordering the world. You have the Roman way, which is peace through victory. 
you destroy everybody in your path through military violence. And then you say, hey, it's so peaceful because everybody who resisted you is dead. You have two competing ways of ordering the world, a way in which the powerful crush, trample, and then set fire and execute to the village and then execute all of those who aren't as powerful as them. And then you have the new way that Jesus is inaugurating. He calls it the kingdom of God, a new way of ordering, a new way of organizing the household in which you feed the hungry and you heal the sick and you care for the poor. And what you see here is the current order. It's rushing down the hill into the lake. It's drowning. It's like this epic confrontation between these two ways of ordering the world. And the way that Mark tells the story is Jesus H. Christ comes to inaugurate a new way of ordering the world. By the way, obviously pigs going into the water, um, anything oppressive that goes into the water, that uh, ask yourself principle of first mention, where, where is the first idea of something oppressive being um, driven into water? And you have to go all the way back to the story of liberation from Exodus, Jesus' ancestors. There's a new Moses in town, and his name is Jesus. Jesus stands essentially over and against these oppressive powers. He's come to confront and liberate people from whatever is holding you down and whatever is enslaving you, and he isn't the least bit intimidated by the Romans. He comes to liberate everybody everywhere who needs to be set free. And he utterly disregards any religious boundaries between him and this man, between their two spaces. Jesus crosses freely between the two spaces. Now, obviously we're surrounded by lots of people who have left religion, and we get that. We get all of the ways in which for so many people, the old systems and institutions and the old places and spaces of authority don't work like they used to. But one of the things that can happen when you toss out all those old systems, like especially in religious world where people would say things like, well, I'm in a place of authority, so this is how it is, or on the authority of the word of God by which they meant their interpretation of the word of God. What often can happen, especially in a modern era where we're surrounded by such technology and we're so empowered and we live with such a sense of democratic egalitarianism, is you lose that sense of transcendent authority. And so when you find yourself unnerved and furious about the government, there's no deeper, more transcendent truth below that you can cling to or stand on or embrace. And, and it can be easy to become paralyzed, become easy to lose hope, become easy to be unnerved and agitated. Part of the power of Jesus H. Christ across the ages is he invites us to join him in the confrontation of whatever the powers that be are. It's like you have a base note that's simply deeper and wider than all the other notes that are playing. Yeah, that's the power. That's the power of Jesus H. Christ. So he grounds you in the base notes. So when you find yourself 
confronted with a system, caught up in some entrenched injustice, and you think, is this the last word? No, it's not the last word. It's not the last word. He comes to liberate us from the lie that this is simply how it is. So you have these people living in these cities who've experienced this horrific violence. So this man who's essentially possessed by this evil spirit becomes like a symbol. He's just a man, and yet he's like a symbol of a whole sort of paralyzed post-traumatic stress from what these people have been through and are living under. And it can make you think that's all there is, can fill you with despair, can make you think there's no hope. And he comes in in this sort of graphic confrontation and says, what is your name? And the power switches and the evil spirit submits to him. Now, those tending, here the story keeps going. (laughs) It just keeps going. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. But the man was sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. You see how deep the despair is, right? You see how the regional, the sort of malaise, the dark cloud oppressing these people, the despair is so great that when healing and liberation come, they're terrified of it. The shame, the humiliation, the horror have set in to such a degree, they've become entrenched to the point where someone being freed is alarming. It's like you wake up, you get set free, you're more alive than ever. You have questions and insights and expanded understandings and possibilities, and then you share these only to receive blank stares. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's like you know that the despair has set in when somebody gets set free and it scares people. Now, those story keeps going. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. <laughs> that is fantastic storytelling. They told the people what had happened to the demon to the to the demon-possessed man, and they told about the pigs as well. Oh yeah, there was this thing he did with pigs. That was weird too, but I'm still talking about the guy. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. They literally can't receive and celebrate the good because of their fear. Couple thoughts on this. First, liberation By the way, (laughs) I'm looking at my notes. I only have one thought on this particular point here. So when I said like first, it sounded like there was like one, two, three. Sometimes I do that. I start like outlining something that just doesn't exist. I have one point. Liberation can be incredibly disruptive because here's the thing. You used to obey. You used to follow the rules. You used to stay quiet about the insanity. You used to go along with the conventional wisdom. You used to live like the other families on your street live. You used to not say anything. You used to do things how your family and tribe taught you things are to be done. You used to show up at the appointed times and smile and nod, and you used to make sure that you didn't say anything about the elephant in the room. You used to play your part, but now you can't. 
you have seen and you can't unsee, you've tasted and you can't untaste. Yeah, and your liberation, your growth, this change, this thing that's happening, the spirit is doing in you can be incredibly disruptive. There's a man who has been harming himself because of his bondage to evil. And Jesus comes and sets him free so that he's dressed and in his right mind. And the response of the people is, Jesus, you have to leave now. It's like, it is possible to be free and more alive than ever with more joy, more vitality, more generosity, more compassion, and at exactly the moment in which you are in a better place than you've ever been is exactly the moment of confrontation with those who would prefer for things to remain the way they are. Jesus comes to confront the despair, and there is this disruption at the heart of healing. Yeah, this is why perhaps you've had somebody in your life who, and I'll notice this in Q&A sometimes, people will say, how do I get my friend to, how do I get my mom to, how do I get my husband to, and it's all, uh, I'm tr- I've experienced something new and I'm trying to get somebody in my life to experience what I've experienced. I'm trying to fix them. Um, they might not want your fixing. They might not want healing. It might be too disruptive. They might not want to read all those books you've given them because if they entertain those ideas, if they go into those new spaces and places, if they say, yeah, I think that would be a good idea to go over to the other side of the lake, you have no idea what dirt and dust that might be kicking up in their life. Oftentimes people are like, why don't just people get it? Why don't people just wake up and embrace all the changes that we need to make? Why don't people just snap out of their stupor and, you know, get progressive or get enlightened or whatever it is? Here's why. Because you exist, human beings, in these complicated matrix, matrices of economics and family and social relations and work and kids and politics and throw in a layer of religion. And man, you start seeing things, you get liberated, you get healed. That might have tremendous impact. That might upset the whole thing. That, that might turn the whole thing upside down. Yeah, this is why sometimes people against all better judgment and reason will stay stuck in old patterns. Liberation can be incredibly disruptive. And what you see here is Jesus literally heals a man and everybody gets together and says, get out of here, please, as fast as you can. We don't want this. We don't want you here. Now, story is starting to end here. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed, by the way, that's how they name him now, two times in a row, is which man? Oh yeah, the man who'd been demon-possessed. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away 
and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. So essentially, this man has his life back. And so the first thing he does is he begs Jesus, you're getting back in the boat and you're going to the other side of the lake, I want to come with you. Like, essentially, can I uh, join up with you guys? And Jesus basically says, uh, no. Uh, uh, hey, guys, can I get in the boat with you? Uh, no. But you like, Jesus, like, you've got disciples. You know, like, you've got a team. I'd be such a good addition to the team. I could be one of your students. Uh, no. No. <laughs> Maybe Jesus doesn't want you to follow him. Because this man is like, I want to follow you. And Jesus basically says, no. No. Nope, you can't come with me. You're going to have to stay here. And then, uh, but, but isn't that the point? Like, like, isn't that the point? Like getting converts? I mean, isn't that Jesus' point? He come, he's come to make disciples. But there's something else here. Because Jesus says no. Like, no, no. Maybe Jesus doesn't want you to follow him. Because he says to this man, no. Essentially, I don't want you to follow me. Why? Because he has something else for the man to do. So what he does is he says to the man, go to your people and tell them uh, what I've done for you and tell them about the mercy God has shown you. Essentially, the plan is just send this man back into the Greek Decapolis with his story. That's the plan. Just, uh, just go tell what happened. Just go tell him. But like, what about like training, right? Doesn't he need like at least an undergrad? Um, what about like sharpening up his arguments? I mean, maybe like a reading list or some podcast recommendations, right? Like the guy, you can't just send him back to his people, to his tribe. That's it? Like, that's it. Like, just go back and, and tell what happened. And tell of how God has had mercy on you. According to Jesus H. Christ, apparently this is enough. The man has been set free, so just go tell how you've been set free to your people. Go back to your family, your brothers and sisters, the neighbors, the village, go into the marketplace, just go tell the story. That's it. That's it. It's as if the man is saying to Jesus, clearly you have students, so let me go with you. Let me learn with them. Because obviously what you do is you train up your students and then you send them out. So let me learn with your students, and then when I'm ready you could send me out like them. And Jesus is essentially like, uh, no, no, you're ready. You're fine. You have everything you need. So just go tell what happened here. Just tell people what I did for you. Tell people what the mercy that God has shown you. It's as if Jesus has more confidence in the man than the man has in the man. It's, it's as if Jesus believes in the man more than the man believes in himself. Because oftentimes people talk about faith, like, you know, you should, you know, you need to believe, you need to have faith. But this is a story about the, the rabbi who has faith in the man. Yeah, just go witness to what you've experienced. What have you seen? What was life like? And now, how is it? What happened? What worked on you? Where have you been? See, it's... It's not about a set of arguments or abstract concepts. 
It's about your lived experience of the healing and grace and mercy. And, and then there's always the fear, like, what if the man gets it wrong? This is apparently something that Jesus just doesn't even consider. Like, what if the man goes out there and sort of makes a mess of it? What if he doesn't really, you know, tell the story well? None of these things appear to bother Jesus in any way. It's just like, no, no, don't follow me. Go, go back to your own people. Yeah, and just tell them what happened. It's, a, it's as if Jesus is saying to the man, you, you have everything you need. Yeah. There is uh, this tremendous human need for validation to find a leader, a sage, a mystic, a yogi, a guru, a pastor, a priest, uh, looking for somebody to tell you you're okay. And then there is this thing that Jesus is doing with his disciples in which he is um, teaching them to listen to what they know is true. You have everything you need. Yeah, you don't, you don't need me to follow you around. You don't need to follow me around. You have everything you need. Just go and tell your uh, story. Think of how many organizations keep reminding you how much you need them. Think of how many institutions. Obviously, when you get into religion, how much work is done to keep reminding and keeping in front of you how much you need them. And obviously, we need each other, and we need support, and we need community, and we need a tribe, and we need a table to feast at. But the goal, the goal here with Jesus H. Christ again and again, the goal is to grow up. It's an elevation in what it means to be human. Like he says at one point, the kingdom of God is within you. And, and like in the New Testament, like Peter, one of the disciples, you know, every, you have everything you need to live in the flow of the divine. Yeah, so you just go and, and witness to what you've experienced. Tell what's happened to you. And oftentimes, people become so beaten down, uh, so filled with shame, assuming that there's some whole world they're missing. If I could just have that uh, stamp, that validation, if that person would just say, I'm okay. Uh, and what Jesus Christ does again and again, he comes to set us free from this idea that if we just had that, then we could go be who we're here to be. So he just says to the man, just, yeah, go. Just go and, and tell what you've seen. That's enough. That's enough. It strikes me how often people will say, like, I'm trying to explain to this friend of mine what's happened. I'm trying to convince these people that there's a whole better way to see things. I'm trying to uh, influence all my coworkers, my neighbors, my siblings about, um, yeah, I don't know how much control you have over that, but you can simply witness to your own liberation. You can tell that story. Some ways, Jesus H. Christ comes to keep reminding us of the simplicity that undergirds all of it. Yeah. Because people will say like, well, who am I to do that? <laughs> uh, you're you, and you've seen what you've seen. You're an expert on that. You're an authority on that. Yeah, yeah. So he sends this man out. After this sort of showdown of authority, Jesus then says to the man who wants to rest under his authority, uh, essentially the one who has all the authority in the story says to the man, no, um, you can't get in the boat. You go to your people 
and tell them what happened here. That's it. Now, there's a coda to this story. There's like a, an epilogue that I think is so fascinating, and I have to believe that this gospel writer, Mark, does this on purpose. But that line, they went over to their side, that whole story is Mark chapter 5. Towards the end of Mark chapter 7, a bit later in the story, Jesus left, here's how it reads, Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. So later, Jesus goes back in to the Decapolis and the region of the Gerasenes. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hands on him. After Jesus took him aside, away from the crowd... Wait a second. What? <laughs> what? Because Mark says that later in the story, Jesus ends up back in the Decapolis, the region of the Gerasenes, and there's a crowd waiting for him, following him around. Then it says, during those days, another large crowd gathered. Now, this is a thoroughly Greek region. This is a region with different gods, different education, a different worldview in many ways. How, when Jesus shows up later, is there a crowd waiting for him, following him around, asking him to heal, expectant that he somehow has some sort of authority to help liberate them from whatever they need to be liberated from? Which, of course, raises the question, why is there a crowd? Is there a crowd because... The, this dude, this just random dude who got set free actually went and told his story and word spread. And by the next time Jesus comes through, so many people have heard from this one dude that a crowd has gathered. It's a very subtle thing happening here. But it all, for me, goes back to this enduring truth that you see again and again and again with Jesus H. Christ. It's this tremendous elevation of the human. He keeps insisting that average, ordinary, everyday people like you and me, and apparently people who have been liberated from evil spirits, uh, just in witnessing to the grace and mercy and healing of the divine, can essentially, how would you even say it, activate all sorts of goodness in the world. At the heart of the story is this insistence that whatever you've been through, you are fully capable of doing all sorts of interesting and compelling things in the world. Yeah. I find great hope in this. I find great comfort in this. It's like Jesus H. Christ just keeps saying, yeah, I could use you. Yeah, we could use someone like you. And then you start listing all your, uh, but I'm not that smart, and I really messed that thing up, and I can barely, and you start listing all the reasons, and he just kept, yeah, yeah, that's exactly the kind of person I could use. Yeah, yeah, ex you're exactly the kind of person that helps make the world a better place. <laughs> yeah, that's what Jesus H. Christ 
does again and again and again. One more thought. I'm assuming that the man sees Jesus' disciples and he's like, oh, that's how it works. He essentially sees conventional wisdom. A rabbi has students. The rabbi trains up the students and then sends them out. Well, he's just set me free and I'm so grateful. Uh, I assume the man's thinking conventional wisdom, right? That's how it's done then. I'll follow him. I'm so grateful. I'd do anything for my own, my life. So I'll uh, follow him and then he'll train me up and then I'll be sent out like his students. I get could, I could to be one of his students. But once again, what you find with Jesus is post-conventional wisdom. He's like, I know that's how it looks like it would normally work, but not with you. Yeah, with you, it's different. You have a different path. So I'm not interested in you comparing yourself to them. I'm interested in you and who you are and what it looks like for you to be fully alive. And what that looks like is you go back to your people and you tell them what happened. So the question I leave you with and the question that Jesus H. Christ brings up again and again and again is in what ways are you looking around going, well, I guess this is how it's done. And Jesus H. Christ comes to say, I know that's how they do it, but you're you and you have your path and your path will not look like her path or his path or their path because your path is your path and only you can walk your path. In what ways are you looking around over your shoulder, comparing, falling prey to the assumptions of conventional wisdom? And Jesus hates Christ again and again and again comes to set us free from whatever the norms and the conventional wisdom around us is. Comes to say, yeah, but with you, we're gonna have to do it this way. This is what it looks like. Yeah, this is what it looks like for you. Yeah, so maybe Jesus Christ doesn't want you to follow him. Maybe he's got something else for you to do. (laughs) I love it. I love saying that title over and over again. And may the grace and peace of Jesus H. Christ be with you every step of the way.